did you hear about us? That is a simple question, but how many folks out there in the business world can accurately answer the top one or two channels of where their customers hear about them? But what if I told you that adding a simple field or question to your sales process will help you out in the long run and also be able to tell you more than any marketing report could ever hope to tell you? That's what the main topic of what we're covering in today's Cyberly episode. Welcome into another show. My name is Blythe Bramley, and on this show, we cover the attention economy, B2B marketing, and how it all ties into the world of logistics. And in today's episode, we're talking about that simple question that will tell you more about your customers than any other marketing software. Kevin Nikeo of Spire Maritime is breaking down his favorite and least favorite marketing tactics. And then the Flexport CEO is making freight Twitter mainstream. That's all on today's show. So let's go ahead and dive into the first topic because in my best 30 for 30 voice, what if I told you the easiest way to gather customer insights is by adding this question to your processes and to your website? How did you hear about us? It's in addition to my website that I made about a year ago because I grew frustrated with what my analytics reports were telling me. Sample data included 90% of my traffic coming from organic SEO. And the questions that led me to ask was, how is that possible when I'm active on social, I produce videos and podcasts, are these other things, these podcasts and these videos a waste of time? And should I just dive headfirst and all in into SEO? But what part of that process is the overwhelming majority of those visitors were showing up, they were reading what they wanted and left. That's what organic so that's what organic SEO was telling me. But my lead reports were saying that it was all because of SEO and direct traffic. Not the podcast, not LinkedIn, not YouTube, not any of these other social media networks that, you know, most of us play somewhat of a moderate role. We post occasionally out to these different social media networks and these different channels. But when you're active in a lot of those channels, it's really difficult to know what's working and what isn't. So you can capitalize on what is working more and stop doing the things that aren't working. But I added this sample piece or this simple piece to my content forms and it told me more than any marketing report could ever hope to tell me because that's when the light bulb moment clicked for me. And that's when I was able to answer those questions of those top one or two channels. Because when I actually had those conversations or when these lead forms start coming through onto my website, you know what the customers told me? Referral from a colleague, podcast, Cyberly, YouTube, LinkedIn. That's what my customers and leads were telling me. And it was completely different than what my attribution reports were telling me. And so that's when it sort of just all shifted for me. And it's a simple addition to your website and also from the process of asking it during sales calls. This would maybe cost you about 10 or about, I wouldn't say probably about 10 minutes for any skilled developer in order to add this to your website immediately. Maybe cost you as a business owner to hire a developer 50 bucks in order to add this to your site. If, if at all, but it should also be added to your sales process because bonus points, if you can also map it to a data field. So whenever you're thinking about the, having these conversations with customers, you can get a little bit more nuanced when you have those discussions. And, and, and I think that that's where I'm also still experiencing a learning curve because it didn't just stop at adding that field to my website. 
what happened is that I had a drop down of all of the different options. So Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, the podcast, YouTube, I had all of these different options. But what happened when I implemented that a year ago is yes, it gave me so much more insight on where the customers heard about me. But then I would have the conversations with customers and I would have them with leads. And they would tell me a few different sources. So they would tell me one or two different channels that weren't even available in the drop down. And so the way I have it mapped out now is I have it as a free text board or a free text field that's on your uh, on your website form. So think of your website forms as someone that's trying to book a meeting, someone that's trying to uh, schedule a demo. So those types of different forms. Also, you're just a regular old contact us form. Those different forms. If you just add this one field to that to that particular form, make it required. Make somebody fill that out and use it in a free text environment, that's going to give you so much more information than if you are just running your monthly attribution reports in HubSpot or Google. And this isn't to, to downplay what benefits that those types of software provide because they do have their benefits. But this little piece of information is cost-effective. You can ingrain it into your sales folks' heads to, hey, ask this question on your sales call. And then you can compile that information using your website data, then you can compile all of that information to have a more accurate representation of, of how folks are finding out about your business and then ultimately which channels that they enjoy the most. So then that way you can make those educated decisions on what to double down on and what to sort of pull back from. So with my, with, with my particular situation, I also have it mapped to, it's called a field map. And if you have any sort of a decent programmer, we'll be able to tell you, hey, we can map this to a specific field. And so whenever you map that to a specific field, data-wise, the customer inputs one thing on the front end or the lead inputs one thing on the front end. And then on the back end, you're still able to run your reports and all of that information is mapped to a specific field. So whether you're running those reports every quarter or uh, at least every year, you should be running them very frequently, much more than that, I, I would argue at least on a quarterly basis, and then monthly would give you a much greater insight as to what's working and what isn't. But you're able to export all of that data and you have firsthand information of the multi-touch points of how folks are interacting with your brand. And with it being a free text field now, I'm able to see several different channels. If it's a referral from a colleague, if it's a referral from someone I've done business with in the past, or maybe it's just someone that I, I, I don't, I've never done business with, but they like my content and they referred me, then I get to know the specific name of that person. So there's a chance that further conversations can happen in the future. But this is one of the single biggest things. It's cost effective. And uh, it's in addition to your sales processes and your, your data collection on your site, that's useful in a great way. It is. It, it, I, I cannot speak the praises high enough because on this show, we have talked about, I mean, it, think of in the past couple of months of all the topics that we have covered and the experts that we've brought on to talk about this, conducting audience research, how to make customer interviews your, your secret weapon, uh, even tackling subject matter interviews within your own office, how marketing operations can connect the ROI to the creative. And using all of this insight really just goes back to the original point of getting this insight from your customers. And it all starts with 
with getting having those conversations with the customers so you can develop this circular marketing plan that will allow you to justify the spend from an ROI perspective on the things you should be investing in and the things that you should pull back from. Start prioritizing those conversations with your customers. Now is the time of the year in order to do that. Have those conversations, prioritize those conversations, and then that way it makes your budgeting and it makes your planning for 2022 go a lot smoother and knowing where to invest your time and your energy. Now, now that I've got that kind of off my chest, let's go ahead and bring in our guest for today's show. His name is Kevin Nikeo. He is Spire Maritime's head of product marketing. He is a fellow creator himself, so I'm excited to, to finally get him on the show. So let's go ahead and welcome in Kevin. Thank you for joining the show. I think we have a little bit of an audio challenge really quick. So let's see if we can get that fixed. Can okay. you hear us now, Kevin? Ah, we got you. I can hear you great. Can you hear me? Okay, I just yeah, I moved I my mic a little bit closer. Okay, great. <laughs> Perfect. Well, well, great. So, w welcome into the show. It's it's, it's a pleasure to Thank to you. chat with you. I was I was going through some of the you know the pre show documents and research that I like to do before for each show, and and yours really resonated with me the most. But for folks who aren't familiar with your career, can you give us a little bit of background of of how you got into marketing and how you found yourself in the maritime industry? Yeah, I would say there's one through line of my whole career, and that is I've always been at the forefront of digital adoption. So I started off in the music business and worked on Rhapsody, the very first music subscription service. I did the same thing with printing and e-commerce. I did that with uh, international money transfers with Remitly. And now I'm doing it here for Spire with Maritime, which is you know really early in its digital adoption. Yeah, and and I would say that with Spire, because when I was looking at the website and some of the YouTube videos that you guys have, it just sent off so many different light bulbs for me. Because admittedly, maritime is is something it's, it's kind of a, a weak spot for me as far as knowledge base goes. Uh, if you had to explain what the maritime industry is to a fifth grader, how would you explain it? I would say, you know what? Look around your room. What do you see? Now take 90% of that and get rid of it because 90% of that stuff was delivered to you by ship. Uh, Maritime provides 90% of the transport of goods. And um, I think that's a, that's a fact that really shocks a lot of people. Most, think, see, most people see the last mile, the truck, the delivery person. They don't realize how much shipping plays a role in that. And I think too, you hit the nail on the head because for me, I, you know, I, I always, I, well, my career in, in logistics has more been on the freight and the trucking side um, and, and even warehousing to an extent, but maritime has always been something that is uh, just, it's sort of fascinated me from afar, but it's one of those questions that I'm always afraid to ask other industry execs. So I appreciate you breaking that down uh, for me now that I, I, I know that awesome stat of 90% of all goods within any given household or any given business comes through on, on that route of shipping. And so yeah. did you know a lot about the maritime industry before you joined or, or was it sort of a, a trial by fire for you? Well, I don't know that much about it yet, but I've been influenced by it. So my father, I've grown up around the water. My father was a commercial fisherman in Alaska. I remember my mom worrying about, you know, his safety. Uh, I worked on an oyster dredge where uh, at low tide, we'd go load all the oysters in a big basket. And we'd wait for high tide and come with a big dredge and we'd pick all the oysters up and move it to deeper waters so they could get more nutrients. So I've been around water and there's just so many facets of it that I'm still learning that um, it's, it's an ongoing process. 
Oh, wow. That is, talk about an incredible childhood. I, having access to the freshest oysters you can imagine. Do you, do you side question? This is, I, I, you know, this isn't technically part of the interview, but I guess it can be because we're having sure. a conversation here. But with the oysters, are you spoiled now by having access to those fresh oysters your entire life? Now you oh, just yeah. go into a restaurant and you're like, absolutely not. I'm not having your oysters. Oh, the best oysters, the best fish. I brought an oyster knife with me. So when I was working out there, I got hungry. I'd pop an oyster and eat it. We had a little burner on the dredge. So if we wanted to cook some oysters, we could do that. Uh, we'd pull up some crabs every once in a while that we could steam that night. So it truly was a life of abundance. And that's why I'm a, I'm a huge believer in sustainable fishing. I think if you manage mm. things correctly, you know, we can have uh, fish crops that last us from time. And that's that's one of the things that attracted me to Aspire is their, their mission really is to uh, leave the world in a better place through sustainable fishing, through weather prediction, and just helping people make better decisions about resources. Now, it, it, you brought up a, a great question, and we'll, we'll get into to some of the, the, I guess, the specifics of what Spire offers. But from uh, from the, I guess, the industry standpoint, when you first joined and you started learning, I, I guess, a, a officially of what the maritime industry does, what was that first yeah. sort of aha moment for you that connected the dots as far as the the content that or the marketing that you could be creating for this industry? Because it sounds like storytelling is just at, at the the ethos of it. Yeah, I mean, it's really people. I mean, you know, we're convinced by logic and we're convinced by emotion. And the emotional tug at my heart is when I was working at Remetly and working with seafarers who just spend months at seas during COVID. Many of them were away mm. from their families for over a year and they need to send money back home to their families. And we would help them with that. But they just make a ton of sacrifices um, for themselves, for their families to to, to trade those 90% of goods. And so that's um, really where I found out that stat and where I realized how important it was for me. The second moment came when I was thinking about, wow, how is all that data tracked and found out, well, it's, it's done on land for these transponders. But, you know, when you think about it, back in the day before there was no technology, what would you do to find out what was going on? You'd go and climb the highest peak. And from there, you'd look at what's going on. And that's what Spire is really doing. We're looking from space down at Earth. And that allows us to look at things like um, many parts of the ocean aren't covered by the land-based tracking systems. And so that gives us the coverage along uh, with a whole bunch of other things that we can do. Now, with with the, the your job of tackling marketing and, and really product marketing, it, it's your really job to, to weed out the BS and to really focus on the storytelling. How are you initially tackling each part of that process of weeding out the BS and then focusing on the storytelling? Yeah, I loved uh, your example today about how you on your form field ask how somebody found out about you. Uh, that's exactly what I do. So I spend a lot of time with customers and customer success, and I basically reverse engineer their journey. Like, what did they do to get, get here? Of course, I can see the tracking on HubSpot, but I want to hear it through the lens of the customers. And some things aren't always trackable like a podcast. Mm -hmm. So I do that, and I found out, like, what did they do? And uh, it, you know, one thing that, that always comes true, it's, it's multiple touch points. So that's why having a multi-touch attribution model is very important. It's not always just one. And then what, what were the dis critical deciding factors? Like, how did you decide to pick us? Um, I just met with one of our customers, Q88, earlier in the month, and I asked them, and they said, oh, yeah, our coverage is really good. You gave us the best data. But I got to tell you, your support was phenomenal. Your, your mm. sales engineer, Austin, did an amazing job. He called us back right away. You had really, really good API documentation. 
And that told me that we actually didn't talk about that enough. So in all of our go-to-market collateral and in our web now, I talk a lot more about um, the support. And our put our, I put our API documentation up front and center. You don't have to register to get it. You can actually see what we have right there. I love that. Ungated um, content. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm actually thinking of moving to that. We, we do too much friction in, in marketing. And uh, I really think our job is to reduce that, make it really easy to have a frictionless customer journey. So um, let, let people opt into the things they want to do. So I'm going to play around with a lot that a lot this year. Um, the other thing I, I think is really important. So we just launched this brand new platform called Invariantine 2.0. And I spent a lot of time with product and engineering and they had set up all this really good automated testing. And it was pretty fantastic because they could actually show how our coverage improved over the last version of our product. And I just shared that with customers and prospects. And that was like a really powerful piece of proof that what we have works. And so there's a lot of great sources. And I think, you know, people want to hear the customer testimonials, but they also want to know that you've got the data to back it up. Absolutely. Because I think that too, you could using that insight and using that information can maybe trigger some some light bulb moments for other folks that maybe they're not using the platform in that way, or they haven't thought about it in that way. But another yeah. customer might be doing that same thing. So then it just helps them sort of further, I guess, invest themselves and invest that that time and that energy into a, a, a platform. Um, that's I, not I guess you would consider would Spire considered you know, to be a core component of the business um, or, or how they operate? Who is your target customer? And, 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 and give us a little background of, of what their workday looks like. Yeah, we have a lot of customers that are helping make the maritime industry better by building applications, providing data. We provide data to, to freight waves um, so they can be the Bloomberg of, of uh, logistics. And so they incorporate it with their data sets. They use it to build their applications. And they, we work also directly with customers. It might be a shipper. It could be a logistics company that um, incorporates it into what they do. Um, we, we primarily focus on the data and making that easy to access. We're not really building any of the end-to-end -end solution. Uh, we let our customers do that. And so I, I guess, you know, now that you bring up Spire, give us a little bit of background because it's a... It, the website feels like it's a huge company. I mean, you have satellites and they, from what I understand, you're transmitting the data down to the, the ocean carriers. And then from there, your customers are making educated decisions. Can you sort of give us, you know, I hate to ask the fifth grader question again, but can you sort of give us that, that rundown of, of how your, it just the entire business operates? Yeah. So it all starts out with this really small satellite uh, about the size of a red box. We call it a lemur. And we put that satellite in space. We have over 100 of them. And from there, we, we pull a lot of data. Uh, and uh, we use that to drive everything from awareness to what's going on with airplanes, to ships that I'm talking about. And then we do some really interesting thing about with weather, where we look at the how particles fly through the air from space. We measure that, and we get really good prediction of predictions of what's going on with Earth. Uh, on Earth. So we've done this. We have a couple different business units. Uh, we have the aviation business unit. We have weather. Um, we partner a lot with our weather team to get solutions for customers that are trying to do transport over the water. They need to know what the weather conditions look like. So we'll team up together. And the other division that's super interesting is um, 
space as a service. It's very much like how Amazon started AWS. You know, they built this great platform to power their e-commerce. And now that they make that available to all of us, probably this show is running on AWS right now. Well, we're doing the same thing with satellites. We allow people to put their software in space on our satellites or we'll build satellites uh, for them. And really, I think that's really democratizing space. You know, before you had to be a billionaire or you had to have government funding. And now we can work with funded startups to do some pretty interesting things. Tell us a little bit about some of those interesting things that you're doing, because that's wild space as a service. And so I guess, how does that work? Are you, are, do you have to add the software into the satellite before it's launched into space? Or can you remote add it or, or remotely add it after it's already in space? Yeah, there's two ways, because we're constantly adding new satellites that, that next round of satellites can include that software. And then there can be remote updates as well. Oh, that's rad. And so what, I guess what kind of software is being added to those those satellites? Is it related to the industry or maybe it's a it doesn't really matter. It's just, you know, a, an, another industry that maybe has to be, you know, just have this functionality. How does that sort of work? What does the customer base look like for something like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I look at it now, a lot of it's about tracking, it's about weather, but there are so hmm. many possibilities. Um, I know our space services group uh, does something with Space Loop, which uh, provides and helps with satellite communications. So just simple IP messaging and email and data transfers. So, um, you know, just like we have software on Earth that just never stops innovating, I think we're going to see the same thing in space. And now that we open this up to more people, uh, we're going to see the same innovation we've seen in maritime. You know, we could have easily tried to build all the applications ourselves for maritime, but we realize we could power hundreds and hundreds and more by making that data available to everybody. That's awesome. So, so coming from uh, you know the the little bit of a sidetrack that I took with the space as a service, yeah. going back to the the weather conversation, how are you guys processing a lot of that data? I, I, I is it just something that you you're collecting the data and then you send out weather reports or is it something where like uh, it's a warning system that, hey, this particular ship needs to be worried about this condition that's heading their way. How does that sort of fit into their workday? Yeah, right now, I, I know that team focuses just a lot on on that data and then the machine learning and building the models to predict things mm. or um, building models and models just like Nate Silver did, although he was not always so accurate. But uh, <laughs> they're doing that. And then they're looking at some of the applications and the smart relators that we, we uh, build on top of that. And the team has done a a really good job recruiting like weather experts. And we've got a whole team in Boulder um, that have done this in the past with other companies. It's a business I don't know as well as I should, but I just know that um, they're really doing some innovative things and, and their solutions can help with agriculture. It could help with um, sustainability by telling you where you can use solar or where you can use wind. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited about what they're doing. Wow, that that sounds super fascinating because in in one of the videos that I was watching, you guys had a couple of examples of how the technology directly affects things like port efficiency and even the cost of tomatoes. Can you can you tell yeah. us I guess who who what is what would the target customer be for for Spire and how how would they use this kind of insight in order to adjust their days because or adjust their workday and how they spend their time? Yeah, so let me give you an example. If let's say you're running a ship, right, and you're headed to the port of Long Beach, and you knew ahead of time there's actually congestion, well, you could actually just slow your roll, slow down the ship, 
and you'll benefit from fuel savings, right? And so, mm. yeah, it's not great that you can't um, get in there as soon as you can, but you can make the most of a bad situation by at least uh, by at least figuring out um, when you should get there to uh, deal with the least amount of congestion. So that's one example. Um, let's say you're at a port too, and you want to know who's coming into port. Well, all the ports have different berths for different types of ships. So you not only need to know what ships are coming in, but what type of berth are they going to need uh, mm. to do that. So those are um, just two good examples. And then one of the things my uh, colleague Andrew Kerman came up with this is, you know, everybody's focused on the last mile. We're focused on the first miles, right? We give that visibility way before it gets to be a problem. We work with a company called Gravity Supply that gives real-time visibility to all the logistics uh, along the way. And um uh, we're excited to see kind of what what happens there as well. Oh, that that's a good phrase that you use. I like that because everyone is focused on the last mile, but the first mile uh, mm-hmm. might have the greatest impact on onto your bottom line. Is that an accurate statement? Correct, and it's actionable, right? You you may not have a lot of choices mm-hmm. as you get too close to port, but if you know what's happening ahead of there, there's probably more options and decisions that you can act on to uh, to, to deal with the situation. Now, with with a lot of your your data collection, you mentioned that it's land versus sea. How is it? Are there any ships, I guess, being tracked as well, and that you're incorporating into your data? And and then how are you then taking that to the next step? Or is are you measuring like geopolitical conflicts that are going on that may impact a you know a, a ship's travel time? Is anything like that being put into put into uh, I guess work or or the work day? Yeah, we're working with this really great company called Global Fishing Watch, and they're they're great about catching illegal fishing. And the way it was described to me is so they can we can help them track certain vessel types. And if we mm. see like two vessels kind of going like this, like synchronized swimmers, we know that vessel type could be dragging a net between. Oops. They can um, they can notify the local authorities, so uh, it can really help out with situations like that. And so the other thing I you know I wanted to call out is just kind of what the sources our data our data are since you alluded to it. So we have our data from space from our satellites, then we get all the data from the terrestrial or land based systems, and then you you alluded to ships, and there's something that we have called dynamic AIS. We're actually pulling the activity from ships, and it's, I don't know if you use the application Waze. But it's kind of like that, like the busier it gets and the more ships that have it and the more crowded it is, the better it it actually helps work to let you know what's going on. So um, there's a lot of good sources of data that we put together. And the other important part of it is um, we have to clean a lot of that up. We have to get uh, hmm. things to match. A lot of times there could be duplicate vessel tracking numbers. And so we kind of have a rock star data scientist team that kind of builds all the agri- algorithms to clean that stuff up. That's fascinating because, I mean, if you think about the the perspective of everything that's going on in the world, you can't necessarily control it, um, but using that data, you can make it actionable in order to try to alleviate from, from some of those things, that, that those negative things happening and impacting your shipment. What, what about like, uh, the, I guess, the modern day pirates? Uh, are, are you guys protecting, you know, some of that cargo <laughs> from, from that that side of the coin too? Or, or are there any kind of data tracking that will tell you, you know, that maybe this is a pirate ship and not a fishing ship? Yeah, I think um, um, some of our uh, some of our partners are, are working on things like that, and you know sometimes people will turn off their tracking systems, but we have ways of making sure that uh, uh, we can we can report and deliver on that. And so yes, hopefully pirating will go down as a result too. Oh, well, 
so that that's something a little fishy to know so maybe if a ship is turning off their tracking then maybe they're they're in on it too but you guys have the satellite data so you're not going to be fooled now going back yeah, so to we work uh, with a lot of three-letter agencies that figure this stuff out too so. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that that I would love to be able to see. I I, I bet that that case study would be uh, super entertaining for for a lot of your customers. Maybe not a case study, but just uh, so, some fun information to to share with them in the future. This is how we stopped, you know, a, yeah. a modern day pirate attack. <laughs> you know, the best case studies you never get to talk about it <laughs> because the you know client doesn't <laughs> want to reveal their secrets to competitors, or you're really doing top secret work. So. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, so going back to uh, the, the marketing role of, of what your job, what, what does it, what does your day-to-day job look like? Um, are, are you, and, and how is it different from when you first started? Cause I imagine when you first started, it was more of an educational barrier that you were, you were trying to get over now that you you're, you're, you're pretty well versed in the industry. How are you uh, applying that insight into what your day-to-day marketing looks like? Yeah, I mean, I'm still very new. And, you know, my playbook anywhere I've gone, because I've shifted to a whole bunch of industries is just start with the customer first, Mm. read all the research, spend time with them, learn their problems. And there's so many tools um, that we can use to find out what's going on. There's the in-person customer interviews, there's the uh, research you can read. And now you have all these tools to see, well, what happened when they came to your website? Where did did they fall off? Where did they leave? Where did they look like they they got stuck? So um, all those things are, are really important. And it's, it's a great place to start, as I said before, kind of reverse engineer kind mm-hmm. of what, what you need to do. And so I'm a big believer in both data-driven insights, but also kind of the anecdotal feedback you, you hear from customers. And I'll give you a really good example of that. So we, this is not at Spire, but another company I was at, um, we were in focus groups. And we heard from some of the participants like, yeah, I don't know if we trust you. You guys have this mobile app. It's really cool. You have this website. How do I know you're going to give me customer service? You have FAQs, but is there anybody there to help me? And Mm -hmm. it was a great point. So we ran an experiment and we actually put a phone number um, on our website, the header, very prominent. And we did an A-B test and we got three calls, but the conversion rate on the version with the phone number was statistically significantly better. And I think it's because it provided that insurance assurance to the customer that there was, so there was somebody to call if, if hmm. you had a problem. Oh, that, that's a really good insight because I, I think that that's where a lot of companies, especially in logistics default to, is they just put the phone number on the site and then they, they, they come to the marketers and they're like, how can we reduce these phone calls? But maybe having the phone number yeah. on the site is closing them business Could and help. they don't even know it. <laughs> True. Yeah. Now, that brings me to to one of my next questions because you said that there's a difference between marketing an organization or marketing org and a growth org. What do you mean by that statement? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, there are level. It's a continuum, and I've really been involved more in growth marketing. And growth marketing is different because you amp up the level of exper- experimentation you do. You're not, you know, you're always testing new things. There should be an A/B test running on every single thing that you do. And it's never good enough. Um, it borrows a lot from lean manufacturing. We do retrospectives and we say, okay, what went well? What could we have done better? And what are we going to try differently next time? So you're always tr- trying this process of continuous improvement uh, on the marketing side. The other thing too that, you know, I, I remember watching uh, my first kind of um, things on growth hacking from Andrew Chen and others is, the biggest shock to me is growth hacking starts with retention first. 
What can you do to get your customers to stay with you? And the reason why it starts there is if you get customers to stay with you and they spend more money, their lifetime values go up. Well, what happens when you have a higher lifetime value? That actually means you can spend more on marketing. So that's part of that growth flywheel that you're building. Um, and the final part, like, and you see this, this is why I've watched your show. You had a great section on multi-touch attribution and marketing ops. You always need to be learning. Like marketing is one of the most dynamic fields, the technology that's out there from bidstream intent data to automation is always changing. So you've got to have a growth mindset and what worked for you five years ago isn't going to work for you tomorrow. Amen. I am. I. I call myself that. Or I, I see that. I think the best marketers are the ones that are curious and they're always willing to learn. But then you you just reach a next level when you're willing to forget your biases and maybe learn something new. I, I think that happened. Uh, you know, for me about a couple of years ago with uh, demand generation and and how. Mm -hmm just creating content and putting that information out where people are already at just significantly increases your, your, your trust factor for, for new customers, you know, coming through the door, potential customers that, that may come through the door. Yeah. And, and actually, there, there's a question I wanted to get your feedback on. I think, you know, we're always learning from each other. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is testimonials, right? So people mm -hmm. want to see testimonials, but they're very biased, right? Most people only talk about what's so great about your company. And I'm actually thinking about whether or not it makes sense to have more of a prompter review of the good, the bad, and the what needs to get fixed and use that instead of just kind of a one-sided testimonial. Have you thought about that and, or what do you, what's your reaction to that? I love that idea because as soon as you said that, the wheels started turning for me. And, and especially if you do those from an interview perspective and, and maybe at first you use the good parts because everybody wants to show off mm -hmm. the good parts. Yes. Uh, but then yeah. the flip side of it, you could take that feedback that you're getting from your customers and then make those mm -hmm. improvements on your own. And then in the future, release that as a, you told us what you wanted to, you told us what improvements you wanted from us and here's how we fix those. I think maybe that's a, sort of similar to what folks use on um, like different project management software uh, that I use where they will have a, a live page where it's a product roadmap. Here's what we have coming in the pipeline. Please make a suggestion mm -hmm. here. Um, is that something so, sort of similar to, to, to what you're thinking or, or maybe trying to plan out in the future? No, but that's what's so cool about this is like, I didn't even think about it from that perspective. And now that gives me ideas. And so, you know, that's my point about the growth mindset is you've got to figure out how to uh, just slay all the sacred cows and just <laughs> do things differently. Cause it, 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 for, because the exercise we just went through, it forces you to think about problems differently too. Absolutely. Cause we're at the nature of it, of, it really logistics in general, we're all problem solvers. They're, we're, you're uh -huh. going to experience problems at some point, whether you're in marketing or whether you're in customer service or accounting, you're going to experience some kind of problem. And so you need to be able to address it. And if your customers are giving you that firsthand insight as to how you can make your product or service better, I don't know of anyone who, well, the, the best companies will use that insight in order to make themselves better. And the other ones will just ignore it. And you know, that, you know, yep. what happens to them is, is to their own making pretty much. Mm -hmm. Now, and it's from, fun. I, I love. 
it is fun. It's, it's, it's reassessing everything that you're challenged with and then trying to come up with a better solution, I think is, is, is something that we will always challenge ourselves with, especially from a data perspective, from the marketing side of things. I mean, obviously you guys have an enormous amount of data and then data scientists that, that are analyzing, you know, things in space to, to, to weather, to terrestrial, to, to all yes. of these different factors. But from a, a, a marketing data perspective, how often are you looking at your A-B tests? Is this something that you're doing every quarter, every six months, maybe once a year? What does that process look like? Because I, I do feel like sometimes in marketing, we can become too obsessed with the data and it, it, you know, we stop doing things before we actually see if it's working or not. Yeah. So if I'm spending money on it, I, I want a good idea of what's, when should I get my first readout, right? Because I've definitely mm -hmm. seen people set campaigns and forget it. And they're not driving any business and they've just wasted a ton of money. So if I'm spending money, I will monitor that quickly. If I'm doing an experiment on a high volume page, I'll actually look at that daily. And I, I do have to admit it's more by choice because I like to see what works and, and what doesn't work. And then, you know, some things take longer and you have to be patient. So it's really, you know, where you're using it and kind of how much money you're spending on it. Um, but uh, I think you should always have an, always be experimenting. There should always be something running because um, that's the only way you're going to improve. And I've, I've seen most programs, whether it be LinkedIn marketing or even Facebook advertising or programmatic, you don't get the win overnight. It's like, it's a slog. <laughs> and you, in your first three months, you improve it by 1%, then you improve it to this to get, you get it to a point to where, you know, it's break even and it becomes profitable and it's an ongoing and continuous process to do that. You, you win, you win the race in inches and improvements by each inch. Oh, I love that phrase. And that brings up my next question because every executive wants to know the answer to the ROI question. How are you answering mm -hmm. that question? What what methodology are you following? Yeah, um, so I definitely look at customer acquisition costs and then compare that to the lifetime values of the customer we're getting. Um, what your ratio there really depends on um, the growth opportunity for, for the business you're in. I think if you're in a growth business with good product market fit, you should be very, very aggressive on those ratios. Um, if you're not and you're focused on earnings, then you probably want to make sure your lifetime values are much higher than your costs. So that's kind of broad level. Then, then you need to figure out, well, what do I want to spend on each channel? And that's why your discussion around multi-touch attribution was really important. So there have been so many times, like in the beginning of Facebook advertising, where you would say, oh, look, it's, it's not, you're spending all this money and it's not driving any business. So then we turn it off and we watch our organic search numbers go down. We watch direct go down. It's like, oh, maybe we're just not tracking it. Uh, at that time, in the very beginning, it's because we didn't have that multi-touch attribution. And, or if we had it, we were only looking at last touch. So um, mm -hmm. this is kind of where the details around that can help you figure out um, where to look at budget. And that's part of the reason why it's important to understand the customer journey. They're not gonna, it's not gonna just be one thing that prompts them to buy your product or service. It's gonna be multiple touches that work together to, to bring that customer to your doorsteps.
And that's a, that's a great way to put it because people think that they look at the, you know, the, the last touch attribution report, maybe, you know, they, they, they run a quick report in HubSpot and that's what they tell them, but they didn't realize that it was all of these different things that yes. affected what that buyer journey. And you would never know that yeah. unless you had the conversation with your customers. And so that, that, that sort of leads me to uh, one of my next questions, because one thing that you said that told me, I think I'm going to like this guy is because you said you hate MQLs. Tell everybody why yes. you hate MQLs. Because I was that guy that loved MQLs <laughs> and I created a huge mess. I remember like very early on in my marketing career, it's like, yo, look at all these leads I've gotten. And I would bring a ton of them in and the sales team would get overwhelmed. And they'd say, well, now we need lead scoring to talk about what to do first. And also it's just a bad customer experience if you focus on it too much. Because then what you do is you're forced to turn that MQL into a sales qualified lead. And you know what? When you're doing content marketing, you're trying to educate somebody, they may not be ready to buy, right? And so why force them to have that sales call? Why, why say they're a bad lead because they're not ready to buy? I've seen many cases where you have college students using your product or researching it. Well, that college, college student then becomes an employee at a company that ends up buying you. So I really believe in focusing on sales qualified leads um, mm -hmm. because that helps with tight orchestration with the sales team it keeps them focused on the things that are, are really important and you know if you're a publicly traded company or any company you've got to have predictable revenues and the mm -hmm. conversion rate from an mql to close deal is so off but you start doing it from a sales qualified lead if you're doing kind of the bant you know budget authority need timing conversation that's highly predictable and so even if it takes 60 120 days to close something you actually can count on it. And so you get those predictable revenue streams. So from a customer experience and a nurturing standpoint, um, your ability to partner and work with sales, I really believe in focusing on, on the bottom of the funnel metrics. Yeah, absolutely. Amen to that, because I think that that's, it's where a fundamental difference has happened over the last 10 years of marketing, where marketers have been tasked with just generate leads, and it doesn't matter the mm -hmm. quality of those leads. And then yes. th that's all they're measured on. So there, there's no incentive to try anything else, because if they do try to get creative, or if they do try to maybe start up a podcast, they're, they're not going to be measured on that until maybe six, 12 months from then. And then by then, who knows if you even still have a job, because you stopped focusing on the MQL. So, so I love that take completely agree. Um, so, so with all that said, and with the, the growth of Spire and, and all of the different data sets that, that you guys have at hand, how are you using that to, to create a new target customer? Or how are you targeting your customers now based on all of that insight of, of what you just shared? Yeah. Um, so uh, we really focus on, well, what is our customer need first? So if we talk to our customer and they have both a need for a weather solution and a maritime solution, we, we team up together to do that. Um, there's so many cases where um, our maritime customers become weather customers. Um, what we try to do as part of our customer success effort is introduce um, our customers to the other parts. Um, so uh, at least kind of walk through a list of the features and if they're interested, then we, um, we refer that person to somebody on one of the other teams. Mm. So collaboration is, is, is pretty critical. And, you know, we're all, you know, we're all mission-based. We want to see us succeed. And so for us, um, if, if we're giving a ton of business to another division, that's, that's great for all of us. 
That's awesome. So customer interviews and collaboration with other departments. It sounds like you guys are, are definitely headed on, on the right track. So, so Kevin, where can folks follow more of your work? Where can they follow Aspire's work? All that good stuff. Yeah, uh, you're in Maritime, where our Twitter, our Twitter feed is uh, at AIS Data. Um, you should. You can also go to uh, our website. We have a blog with really great information from our weather team, from Maritime. Um, we do a lot of really good data stories around port congestion, so that's another good place to start. Um, I, I'm not active as active on Twitter as I used to be, but I'm there at at K Nacal, and um, yeah, those are all the places you can reach out to us. Awesome. Well, well, we I know we have some of those linked in the show notes. So anybody who's interested in, in, in following your work and, and your and your company's work, we'll make it easy for them and link to them in the show notes. But appreciate your insight and and all all good information, especially on um, the potential of of pirates seizing uh, different cargo. I thought yes. that, that was fascinating. You're, you're, and also, I, I have I have a feeling you're going to be a pirate for Halloween. <laughs> you're fascinated. Oh, by I, it. Well, I've been one in the past, so I can't. I, I I'm, okay. I'm not going to repeat it. I'm actually going to be uh, Gandalf from Lord of the Rings for for Halloween. So for folks who who are, nice. are nerdy with me, they'll they'll know. What are you going to be for Halloween? I haven't even thought about that. So um, <laughs> well, you, you got know, two days. I, I, well, I have a sweatshirt I put on every year that's red and it says ketchup. So I'll probably just be ketchup again. <laughs> Well, as long as it works, right? It's probably a good, yes. uh, a funny talking point. <laughs> all right. Well, Kevin, yes, I appreciate is. your time today and, and your insight. Um, like I said, we'll link to all, all of your different social connections in the show notes so, so people can follow more of your work and learn about um, all the cool stuff that you guys are doing. So thank you again. Thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Absolutely. What a fun conversation. We, we started off with talking about oyster farming and sustainable fishing. And then we get to talk in, you know, a little bit about data and space as a service that that was a that that was a really fun conversation that that I didn't see some of those topics coming through. Um, they wasn't weren't necessarily on my show notes. But that's the glory of, of, of having a good conversation with, with folks within the industry who um, are, are doing things the right way, especially from a, a customer interview perspective, and from a marketing perspective. And and as I mentioned that, Let's go ahead and dive into our final topic for today, because I think that it's really interesting to see how freight has become so mainstream in the eyes of just an average everyday American. And we, we talk a lot about the attention economy on this show. And so I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the freight Twitter story of the week. And it really, it happened all over the, the, the last week. And yes, I say freight Twitter because that has officially become a thing. And it's been a, you might say it's been a thing for a little while, but it's become more mainstream, especially over the last week. Um, because I, you know, for, for me, I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter. I think that it's it's one of those things where it's the, the best of human humanity and also the absolute worst of humanity. Um, but this was a fun thing to watch evolve from sort of the sidelines. And, and if you haven't heard, Ryan Peterson, he's the founder of Flexport. He has been going to the port of Long Beach, um, which has been obviously clogged. It's been making, you know, even the Today Show and other morning news programming, he's been making the rounds on, on all of those, but not him himself, but his tweets are making the rounds. And so I wanted to give a breakdown of his week on Twitter, because firstly, he and his team went to go visit the port of Long Beach and they gave the workers there free tacos. Now, this sounds like something that should be done on a regular basis, but apparently this has never happened for these workers at the port, which blows my mind because when I worked at a 3PL, I was ordering food for the entire office at least 
once a week. It's one of those expenses that it's not really a large expense if you're challenging your team to, to tackle a bunch of problems throughout the week and you want them to be focused and you want them to be energized. It's one of those things that it should happen on a regular basis, especially right now we're in peak season, all of the, the supply chain challenges that have been going on. This is such a simple thing to do and it has never happened for these workers. So minor gripe aside for that, he and his team over at Flexport provided free tacos for these workers over there with the idea that they would be able to be able to do some of these customer interviews and find out firsthand just what the hell's going on at the port and why can't we get some of these efficiencies put in place. And so because of that, he pointed out all of those weaknesses and insight in a large Twitter thread. This thread started to go viral. I would name them here, but there's too many to count. But one key point was a quick fix. He said being able to stack containers more than too high, it's a city zoning code, but he noted that it was something that can easily be fixed today. And well, the mayor of Long Beach agreed because he temporarily sent out, he sent out a tweet in response to this, temporarily allowing containers to be stacked four to five high. So this is the mayor of Long Beach immediately seeing, not immediately, but pretty immediately within a couple days of seeing this tweet storm go viral. And then he makes the executive response in order to say, okay, we're going to alleviate, we're going to do our part and do what we can and be able to, you know, temporarily suspend the zoning law of stacking, you know, simple things, stacking containers four to five high. Now, one response from one of the mainstream media folks was perfect. I think it was actually from the Odd Lots podcasters who I'm, I'm you know, I, I'll link to them in a future show because they've been doing a supply chain series. And I think they just dropped another episode today with, with FreightWave CEO and founder Craig Fuller. Those episodes have been so enlightening to listen to because even as someone in supply chain in logistics there are things within the industry that I don't know about but I want to stay uh, I want to stay abreast of what's going on around the industry so those have been so insightful to learn from the different aspects of ocean and rail and the the, the truck side of things so highly suggest going to to subscribe to that podcast odd lots because it's fascinating uh deep dive but the one of the hosts said one of the hosts said great to see a founder jump in and find bottlenecks and remove them compared to politicians and unions that are typically slow movers so Another tweet from the Flexport founder just a few days later, after he solved this one problem, he was complaining about a 404 error, error code on uh, the google.com slash meet. So this is a URL to schedule meetings. And that URL has been bad for a while, apparently a few years now. Google changed this URL to meet google.com, but didn't bother setting up a redirect for the old link. And what's frustrating for from a user perspective is that if you go and you try to just quickly Google, if your browser remembers that old link, then it'll automatically redirect you to that bad link just automatically for, from the browser standpoint. Because Google didn't set up a redirect, which they have tools in order to do this, that tells me as a website owner that, hey, you got some 404s, you need to get them fixed. Why they didn't use this on their own software is mind boggling to me. But there was a product tech person, there was a product engineer at Google, not a product tech person, but I guess it's kind of the same thing. But a product engineer at Google was tagged in the Flexport CEO's Twitter thread about that. And that too ended up being fixed. So if you're keeping count, he's fixed Google URLs that were incorrect and resulting in a 404, despite this company having all of the resources in the world in order to run 404 error reports, 
But then he also fixed the zoning law in the city of Long Beach. So those are two big moments. I, I would argue that the first one with fixing the zoning, the zoning law was probably bigger than fixing the, the bad URL. But who knows how many other people were complaining about that same thing. And now Ryan has helped to fix that as well. And then to top it all off, because he's had quite the week on Twitter, his wife, Ryan's wife, built a replica of the Ever Given and that shared it on Twitter as well. Now, remember, that's the ship that got stuck, infamously stuck in the Suez Canal earlier this year. Well, his wife converted one of those little red wagons into the Ever Given. They have their small toddler in the, the little red wagon. They're using it to go trick-or-treating. It's an adorable video if you're seeing the, 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 the video version of it. Um, but I also have it linked in the show notes in case you want to check it out because it, it really is adorable. And she does like this behind the scenes of how she actually got it built. And it looks like it's largely built out of cardboard. She assembles it all together, puts the toddler in and guess what? You have an amazing Halloween, you know, I guess, quote unquote costume. Um, you have an amazing costume or really just a candy collecting vehicle um, that isn't going to get stuck hopefully. And so she can, uh, it's just a really creative approach. And he's showing a lot of the insight to problem solving, to the backstory, to um, to, to behind the scenes action, and even mixing in a little of personal life. And that's what I really wanted to bring this all back to is because a lot of folks are concerned or they, they just don't know how to start on social media. And while Ryan has gotten a ton of press from a lot of these different tweets, you can't pay for that kind of PR. He's arguably gotten thousands and thousands of dollars in PR just from the last week of just being on Twitter and just expressing some of the, the problems within the industry and quick solutions on how to get this fixed. And so he's showcasing that. He's showcasing the behind the scenes of, of talking to workers, providing them food, simple things that he's just documenting. It sort of goes back to that, that infamous slogan for, from Gary Vaynerchuk, where he says, document, don't create. Don't spend too much time thinking about the content you want to create. Document what goes on in your daily lives, the, the struggle points for your customers and, and the problems that you're trying to solve. And then mix in a little bit of personality. That's where a lot of confusion comes into play with some of these social media networks is that you're over you're overthinking it. You're overcomplicating it. Show the simple things, because when you show the simple things and you show how folks can connect with you, then you're just giving them that extra added bonus of familiarity with your brand. You're also giving that extra added bonus of, of the trust factor. And it, maybe I can signal back to our earlier conversation with Kevin, where he talked about, you know, a new idea of how he wants to treat customer testimonials, where he wants to hear the bad and he wants to showcase the bad, not just the good, but he wants to showcase the bad in order to tell his customers or potential customers in the future of, hey, we listen to you. You don't just become a customer and then we forget all about you. You become a customer and then we're going to continue to listen to you and continue to make the product better. Um, so showing those kind of different insights, especially from the behind the scenes, the, the, the problems within your organization, within your industry, showcasing those on a social media platform can make a lot of executives a little nervous and it might not be right for everybody, but it clearly has been proven valuable for folks like Ryan over at Flexport. So kudos to him for sharing all of that behind the scenes insight and, and information and getting it to the point where stuff is actually being fixed 
because of your tweets. Um, and you're getting all of this added exposure. So I, I just think it was a great week for Freight Twitter. If you don't currently have a, a Twitter account, I would highly advise you know going and getting one started and just seeing the conversations that are developing on that platform because there's a lot of great conversations that are a complement to other social media platforms such as LinkedIn, such as YouTube, TikTok, all of the, the ones that we essentially talk about on this show. That's the attention economy in a nutshell. So I hope you enjoyed that little breakdown um, because we got more coming over the next couple of months in order to, to help you guys understand how to get started with your marketing. Stop overcomplicating it. It really doesn't have to be that complicated. You're just sharing your insight and, and perspective on what's going on in the world. So thank you guys for tuning into the show. If you missed any part of this episode, you can catch the replay over on Freight Waves TV. If you want to follow more of my work, check out Digital Dispatch. Io. All of my social media channels are there and you can follow them at your leisure. We'll be back next week, 2 p.m. with a brand new episode. And uh, like I said, catch the replay on Freight Waves TV because this, today was a good one. Thank you guys again. And I hope to see you all real soon.